a nation? Do we withdraw on this sort of nationalistic momentum, or do we adhere to what's written at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty? Welcome to another episode of Mind of State. I'm Michael Epstein. And I'm Betty Tang. And together we are your hosts for Mind of State, a podcast for both political junkies and armchair strikes. Hi, Michael. Hey, Betty. Michael, do you remember the Dos Equis beer commercial? Um, I think it started a few years back. Sure, sure. The most interesting man in the world. Yeah, it features this uh, debonair white guy who climbs mountains, uh, jet skis, drives fancy cars, and seems at home in really wealthy environments. Um, All all the things that, I I guess, beer commercial people think uh, make someone fascinating. The tagline was something like, uh, if you drink beer... It, consider drinking Dos Equis or or stay thirsty, my friends, something like that. Yeah, I remember. So for, for me and for everyone else listening, just hold on to that thought as I welcome today's guest, Dr. Hawthorne, Hawk Smith. And it's such a pleasure, Hawk. Welcome to Mind of State. Thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. So Dr. Hawthorne Smith is a clinical psychologist and program director of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture, one of just a handful of organizations nationwide that provides comprehensive medical, legal, psychiatric, psychological, and social services needs for asylum seekers. He is also an associate clinical professor at the NYU School of Medicine in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Smith has been recognized for his work with such awards as the Robin Hood Foundation's Hero Award and the International Youth Leadership Institute's W.E.B. Dubois Award. He was also a co-founding member of Nawiyon Incorporated, a nonprofit organization working primarily with refugees from Sierra Leone, as well as other displaced Africans in New York, and helped coordinate the International Youth Leadership Institute, IYLI, a leadership program for marginalized New York City teens. In addition to running the program for survivors of torture, Dr. Smith provides forensic evaluations, human rights consultations, and mitigation services to the organizations, to organizations like the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Office of Federal Defenders. Hawthorne Smith is also a professional musician, a saxophonist, and a vocalist with international experience. So really, the reason why I mentioned that Dos Equis is the most interesting man in the world, Michael and Hawk is that, Hawk, I think you are the most interesting man in the world. If there was a contest, I'd nominate you. I read this bio, and I'm just like, this is enough. You know, I get to saxophonist and vocalist, and I, I'm done. I, I'm. It's time for me to go home. <laughs> so without further ado, uh, Hawthorne or Hawk, as I know you to be, tell me a little bit about what we wanted to talk about today, which is this new change in policy of very easily acronymed LIFO versus FIFO, which has happened in our current administrative change in immigration policy. It's something that you wanted to highlight, and I think it's very interesting. Absolutely. And once again, thank you for having me. I wasn't nervous until you gave me that introduction, but now <laughs> I better be interesting first thing in the morning, right? Um, or just drink a beer. There, there you go. Exactly. Here, how about Dos Equis and we'll talk. <laughs> right. That sounds We wonderful. need a sponsor anyway. So <laughs> right. Um, yes, we are talking about the asylum process, and it's something I've been involved with through the Program for Survivors of Torture for these past 23 years. We've seen a lot of changes. And um, some of the recent changes have been really, really daunting. We're seeing a system that is increasingly not systematic at all. People are paying a very severe and significant psychological cost while being involved in this system. The acronyms you just gave, FIFO and LIFO. FIFO is first in, first out. 
LIFO is last in, first out. And the explanation is, let's assume, for example, Betty, you came to the States and you applied for asylum three years ago. And I just show up today and I'm applying for asylum now. First in, first out would signify that your case would be treated before my case, sort of a first come, first serve sort of thing, which makes logical sense. And it's about an average of a two-year, two, two to three-year wait as, it, as it's been. Exactly, as the system is very waterlogged right now. But what has happened recently is there has been a change in policy to LIFO, which now stands for last in, first out, meaning that even though you were here three years before me, if I come in and apply, my case will be treated first. And part of the um, rationale, I'm doing air quotes here, which you can't see on, <laughs> on a podcast, but um, the rationale behind that is sort of the assumption that most people coming to apply for asylum are applying frivolously, that these are cases that really have no legal standing. And understanding that the, the, the system is so waterlogged right now, there is a fear in terms of the administration that people will just apply with frivolous cases and then get into the system, be able to get their employment authorization documents, et cetera, and be here in the country for four or five years while they adjudicate their case. So what they're sort of saying is almost an assumption of um, of lying, of lying exactly. So they're having so their cases I'm, treated. So my example would be as a liar. I'm assumed to be a liar if I've been here for three years waiting for my asylum period. You're assumed to, to be a liar if you walk in the door today. Right. Both. Well, I I don't want to go and prejudge what it is they're <laughs> saying, but it does seem there's a presupposition that those people coming in there are a lot of frivolous cases. Let's get them out of the way first so that they don't get into the system, get work authorization, et cetera. Can, can you take a step back for us, mm -hmm. and can you just tell us, uh, before we get too deep into the woods of, mm -hmm. or weeds of uh, process, right. why someone's seeking asylum in your experience, the people you see? Because if the, if the assumption now of the Trump administration or people like Jeff Sessions, who's no longer the attorney general, but just in general – that we should be turning refugees away. And we can talk about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the fact that we signed on and refugee rights in a sec. Mm -hmm. But if the assumption is we should not be taking in refugees, we should be working hard to deter people from even showing up at our door. I think it's a fair assumption at this point. I think that's the Steve Miller, Trump... You're shaking your head, but I'm going yeah. to say if yes for the podcast folks listening in. Yeah, and I, just to get to your initial question on that, who are the people who are coming? Right, who um, are those people yeah, we're turning exactly. away then? Oftentimes when I do trainings um, on, on this material and I'm going to a crowd that might not be as well-versed in what's going on, I will start by asking a few questions. I will ask people to raise their hands, for example, if they have ever voted in an election or if they have ever written a letter to the editor, which immediately dates me as an old guy, or I'll say, have they ever written um, a blog post or common thread, mm -hmm. yeah, common thread, <laughs> right? exactly. Um, I will ask if anyone belongs to an identifiable religious group, or if they don't belong to an identifiable religious group, um, do they identify as a woman? Um, do they have, or are they close to somebody who has a sexual orientation other than, than heterosexual? And then I'll sort of stop and say, okay, you're probably wondering who is this guy and why is he asking all these intrusive and semi-inappropriate questions? Um, but the answer is that if you raised your hand to any of those questions I just asked, I can say that the people we are treating at the program are people just like you. You know, we are not looking at an exotic other. 
when we're looking at torture survivors or people who are fleeing persecution. Um, it really is a question of shared humanity. And, or terrorists. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's the presumption, that the people that are seeking refuge are going to be criminals or they're going to be... Yeah, there's a great deal of, of, of fear, and I think there's a, a lot of misunderstanding um, regarding who these people are. So I think that this is very important. What we're talking about is that when you look at what's written at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty and what this country has always supposedly stood for, um, that these are people coming and seeking solace, seeking safety, and under very harrowing circumstances. Um, literally in the last two or three weeks, we have had families referred to us from detention centers in, along the border uh, with Mexico and Texas, from Laredo, Texas, who were paroled on, again, air quotes, humanitarian grounds, but who were given their next address as 462 First Avenue, New York, New York. They were just sent. Which is your address. Which is our address at Bellevue. And um, people coming from Central African countries and coming through and being detained at the border, very long, um, arduous journey, but coming through the, the correct way and at the correct places. Um, and then being just sent, good luck, no bus ticket, anything, and forced to find their way to New York. And we've had a couple of occasions where we've just seen families who have arrived, come up to our offices on the seventh floor with suitcases, and very surprised to find out that we're not a hotel or a hostel or something like a youth hostel or what have you. Um, and then we have to scramble. So it's happened a couple times in the last few weeks. I don't know if this is going to happen more often, but... And what, and, know, and what we, are their experiences? Who are they? Yeah, again, as I was saying, and, and that... For example, a couple of the folks who have just recently arrived were people who were manifesting and being involved in opposition politics against um, dictatorial regimes in, in their home countries. In what and, countries? Uh, in one, one country, for example, was Democratic Republic of Congo, um, where there has been ongoing violence since 1997. Um, and for a, a really complex um, sort of network of reasons, there's incredible there are incredible natural resources in the eastern part of Congo, including uranium, coltan, the things that go on all of our cell phones, all of those things, and they're being exploited. And that is also where there's a great deal of violence going on. There has been a regime in place um, since the, the late 90s, after the assassination of the first president, Kabila, um, the second president coming in and um, trampling on the Constitution. Oh, I'm only supposed to have um, two mandates, but we're going to rip up the Constitution. I'm going to present myself for a third or for another. And people are pushing back. And those people who push back are horribly abused and detained and oftentimes forced to flee the country, um, often on to, into a border, the country right next to it, where, again, we always say if you're fleeing a war-torn, chaotic, impoverished nation, it seems like four out of five times you're crossing the border into a chaotic, impoverished, perhaps. So it's a f frying pan into the fire kind exactly. of situation. Exactly. And, and then they hope that, the, you know, finally the end of their journey here will sort of be the antidote to that. What we're seeing now is increased Another frying pan. Um, another frying pan, indeed. We're we're becoming another frying pan. I mean, this language that you're 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 talking about, which is the language of the UC USCIS, um, paroled, detained, mm -hmm. um, frivolous. Um, I mean, it's it's just interesting because it points to a criminalization of 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 immigration, of asylum seekers. And I want to ground us in the fact that, you know, these people are people who have been subjugated in their own countries, flee, come to us, um, 
with a process that they have learned that is possible get detained and how long are they detained have this has this particular family from from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo been been detained? It can be a wide range. Um, a, a couple of the, the, the recent families that were just sent to us, the detention was not long at all. It was only a few days. We've had other clients from other countries who are detained for well over a year. Um, and oftentimes some of their cases adjudicated while they are in detention. Um, so again, as I sort of mentioned up front, it is a system that is becoming less systematic over time, more sort of capricious. And um, and this sort of lack of control, this lack of knowing what's coming next is also something that weighs on survivors in a very strong emotional sense. And, you know, again, as we were sort of talking about that FIFO, LIFO situation for people who have been here for three years and are still waiting for that initial asylum interview and now are being told that they're being placed at the end of the line, it is, um, it's emotionally wrenching and, and, and really has um, negative impact on their functioning when every day could be that day that they get the notice that they're going to get an interview and every day going to the mailbox, every day sort of checking that out and it doesn't come, it doesn't come and having no sense of control. Um, just being able to go check the uh, USCIS website and all you see is that your case is pending, no more information while they're getting calls from their family back in their home country. And I think this is one of the most wrenching things because we actually begin to see families disintegrate as someone's been here for two and a half, three years, there's no progress. And then someone might express doubt. A spouse might be, have you found a new family? Have you given up on us? Parents who have not seen their children for years. I mean, we, we have these wrenching um, images of what's going on at our, our southern border now. But a lot of the family separations we don't have images are, are these people who came over, again, quote unquote, the correct way, have been sitting in the system for three years while their children, while their spouses are sitting behind a firewall in still what is a very chaotic, dangerous place. And the, and, and once hmm. they get a hearing, they what do they hope for? They're, they're looking for a, a ratification that they're here of their asylum status, and then they can seek to seek citizenship or seek work permits, seek, seek to stay here, or seek, a, seek a green card. Yes. So um, through the asylum process, oftentimes it's, it moves so slowly now that one might be able to get uh, employment authorization while still in process. Mm -hmm. I think that that's some of the, uh, the, the reasoning behind the LIFO thing is that oh, we don't want people in this long process and still be able to work. We want to get the frivolous quote unquote cases out. But what they want is a normalization of their status so that they, while their case is pending, they're here legally. They are not illegal in any sense. Um, they're not fully documented, but they are legal in the United States while this case is pending. Um, the first step is usually um, an asylum interview at the level of the asylum office. Um, we find that it's it's a very high bar to get your asylum granted at the level of the asylum office, even um, at, at our program. Oftentimes, we sort of do a little stress inoculation with our clients that if you don't get it at that level, if you are referred to um, the immigration court, it doesn't mean they didn't believe your case. It doesn't mean that you have a weak case. But the asylum officers don't have the wherewithal to grant as as readily as an immigration judge. So you've seen the cases approved go down in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, there, there's statistics out that, yes, the cases, um, the, the level of um, approvals are going down. But what we are really sitting with is that the um, 
the lack of rapidity, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. how slow these cases are. So even if someone has a strong case, what you mentioned before, maybe it's two or three years it might take. Now it's more easily four or five years. Mm-hmm. Um, What's the cause of that? Is it just that the system's overloaded? The system is overloaded. And um, there have been times with what has been going on at the southern border that sometimes asylum officers have been um, relocated um, and sent there to sort of deal with that situation so that we don't have as many at Lindhurst, New Jersey, or in Rosedale, Queens, where they adjudicate cases here in the United States. Um, And also, I think that there's been an increase in need. And so, as we were saying before, when people go to the asylum office, if it doesn't work at that level, they're referred to immigration court. And it's at that level that they will see the immigration judge. That's where we have more of, of a chance to bring in expert witnesses to provide affidavits. Um, we really help to prepare people to sort of tolerate what is generally intolerable in terms of this process and sort of hang in there. I've heard statistics that um, anywhere from like 23 up to 35, 40% of cases of asylum cases that um, are adjudicated only, you know, a minority, like 25 to 40% are actually um, adjudicated successfully. At our program, we have about a 97% success rate. And some of that, I think, is selection bias, that we're getting some of the more highly traumatized people and, and working with them. Also, the fact that we are able to provide the support to help them to tolerate this process. We're able to help provide medical affidavits, uh, psychological affidavits, um, even help them get with pro bono attorneys or whatever it might be. We're able to really help solidify the cases. Um but again, most people are not able to get to a program like us. People are knocking on the door and our waiting list is um, is extensive. And How so, many people do you help right now? We helped uh, between four to 500 people last year in terms of active cases. At and our how program. long is your waiting list? Um, at the time, we had to push the pause button on our waiting list because of staffing issues, et cetera. Our waiting list was approaching a year. Um, and again, for people in distress and particularly now, again, with this LIFO situation where people are coming and getting, you know, this, so the exact opposite problem of someone who's been waiting here for three years and can't get any movement on the case. Some of these people who are coming in are now getting, um, you know, court notices that they need to be there in four weeks or six weeks. And at that point, they probably have not found a lawyer. They have not been so able to get So they're ill-prepared for that hearing. Ill-prepared um, and perhaps can fall prey to um, some less than reputable services within the community. You know, we talk about notarios and places like that. Um, a lot of my Francophone clients talk about les conseils de la rue, you know, sort of street street advice. Street and, lawyers, you yeah. Know, street lawyers who do this and that, kind of a slipshod thing. And if you go there now and your story is not airtight or there are contradictions or there are things that don't make kind of sense, um, yeah, the bar is even higher. So so in a way, this last in, first out, first in, last out is hurting people on both ends of this waiting list. The the people coming in first in aren't, aren't don't have the time to prepare a, a, a viable case in front of UC, USCIS, and then the people who've been waiting are falling apart or losing heart or or also not not getting their hearings. They're they're being bumped to the back of the line, so yes. they're waiting even longer. Um, so both this whole thing is um, a, a a subjugation or a persecution of people who are seeking asylum. It's it's to harm them. Well, you are absolutely correct that people on both ends of this equation are suffering. You know, um, I, I 
I hesitate to go so far that it's purposeful mm-hmm. to harm them, but there is harm being committed. Uh, the people are definitely suffering. I remember I had a group session. Um, I run a group for French-speaking African survivors. It's been up and running for about 22 years now. And there was a particular session where a gentleman from Guinea um, said, you know what? I'm done. I'm going home. Um, my kids are calling me. I can't do anything for them. I'm going home. I know I'll be killed. I know as soon as they find out um, the, the, the authorities that I'm back in the country, they will kill me. But what did he do to the, that he thinks his life is in danger? He spoke up in terms of corruption. He spoke up in terms of human rights and, and the rights of women um, regarding FGC. Female genital mutilation. That is correct. And, genital um, cutting. Yeah. So he spoke up on these issues and he suffered greatly for it. Um, anyway, he was saying that I'm ready to go home because at this point I can't hug my babies. And if I go home, I know they'll kill me, but maybe I'll have a few days. Maybe I'll have a couple weeks where I can hug my babies because I can't even do that yet. And, and people in the group, um, really responded in supportive ways. People shared their stories. There was a, a gentleman from Congo Brazzaville who talked about when he first came to the United States, I mean, he had set up a way to, to get into the airport, but it had to be when a particular officer who had been bribed or someone else was there to get him on the plane because uh, he was being sought again for political opposition. And when it came like, okay, you need to get to the airport now. You need to be here within 60 minutes. We're, we're flying. But his son wasn't home. His older son wasn't home. And he waited as long as he could. He couldn't. He left. And when he got to the United States and he first, you know, activated his cell phone, all he saw were text messages from his son. Daddy, you didn't even say goodbye to me. And so his first few days in this country, just wandering around like a zombie, how do I respond to my son? He shared this story, but then was also able to talk about the fact that now he has successfully adjudicated his asylum case. Um, he's in the process of trying to reunite his family. But what he said to the, the gentleman from Guinea, and I thought it was very poignant, was like, you can no longer think about your family as the family you left behind. You have to think about the family that you're moving toward that is in front of you. Because if you sort of place them in that context that you're moving towards this, that you're, you're working, you're going through this horrific pain that you're going through right now, but they're in front of you, that will give you the strength to persevere. But if you think of them as behind you, you will drown. And um, it's this sort of insight, it's this sort of um, mutual support that clients give one another that I think they can speak to more poignantly because they're involved in it. They're really walking those in those shoes, and that's what we try to provide. So that that young uh, that gentleman who who successfully adjudicated his case, he mm-hmm. he's the gentleman who who came here and found the text messages. Yes, right? is his son able in 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 his future self? Can he, does he have any reasonable hope of reuniting with his family or no? Yes, that is in process now. Um, this is one of the things that we really work with our clients on is that as, as arduous as this is, one of the only tools we have left is this notion of hope um, that our, our clients have. And this person who was now able to successfully adjudicate and get his asylum is in the process of family reunification. There are things around DNA tests and tickets and blah, 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 visas. But if um, an adult, wins um, asylum, then their biological children under the age of 21 can be covered within that. So we're in the midst of trying to make that happen. And again, it's a question of resources, even, you know, plane tickets from New York to, from Congo Brazzaville, 
not easy. Um, things and, like that. And how many years has it been since they've been separated? That's been about five years. So, so this is the real. I mean, this is without any kind of policy change and um, persecution or, or attack on immigration. This is this has just been happening for decades now. This is the the challenges of of seeking asylum in the United States. That is yes, that's very that's very accurate. But I, I do think that what has been happening recently. It sort of turns up the temperature in terms of the anxiety or the potential for hopelessness. Um, again, those uh, those street rumors going out there. We've had group sessions where there's a text that goes around, has gone sort of viral. Like, do not take the train up to 125th Street because they're rounding up all the Guineans on 125th Street and sending folks back. And it wasn't true, but it's still enough to make someone not want to leave their apartment, not come to their to their appointments, not go to work. It's getting in the way. Not go to their hearing appointments, perhaps. Perhaps, that's right. So where do you think these things are sourced from, these these kind of viral text messages, these rumors? Um, are, is it from the atmosphere? Is it from somebody in the community who just gets anxious, hyper-anxious, and hears something? Um, it's an anxiety response, clearly. And is it is it a result of this macro environment becoming very, very um, heightened and, and antagonistic towards immigrants? Are people very aware that they could get stopped on the street and sent home in, in a second? Yeah, I couldn't identify the particular source of the text, but I definitely do think that the um, the environment and the anxiety that is prevalent um, not only perhaps can increase the number of these sort of rumors that go around, but also change the way in which they're heard. So we um, work with um, different partners, Lutheran Social Services, et cetera, in terms of trying to do know your rights trainings for our clients, what to do if someone approaches them on the street, what to do if someone knocks at their door and identifies themselves as an immigration um, officer, what sort of things, what sort of rights they have, you know, in terms of asking for a warrant, um, in terms of, you know, their right to speak with their lawyer before engaging with folks. Um, even if things happen on the street, you know, while identifying and moving very slowly, perhaps even having their phone out to record what is happening, things, different sort of steps that they can take, but knowing that they are still within their rights, because a lot of times what is being said in the neighborhood, um, is something that sort of contradicts that and lets them know that they are absolutely powerless. And we let them know, you know, you are, you have legal status. You have applied. Your case is pending, and um, you can't and, just get kick, 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 kicked out. Exactly. Exactly. I'm curious how, if you look back at the Obama years, mm-hmm. uh, or before that, George W. Bush, um, were do you look at those as as like the golden years? I mean, because you know, one of the things that I think was missed during the Obama administration was they were quite hard on immigrants. And I wonder if in the Trump era we look back and don't honestly assess that what we've been doing for a very long time, regardless of a political party or an administration, has been uh, less than uh, generous. I think that's fair. Um, I came into this work in 1995. There were landmark immigration laws passed in 1996, um, during the Clinton administration, it made things um, harder. We had the 12-month bar that was placed in that if you didn't apply um, within 12 months of arriving in the country, it made things much more difficult to adjudicate. There's a lot that was going on there. 
So it has not been my experience. I cannot point to any golden era with this. It has always been hard. It's always been an uphill struggle. I think that the majority of cases have been denied through the course of the time I've done this work. But I think what's going on now is that um, there there is more of that sort of sense of anxiety in a system that is becoming less systematic. I'm actually on call right now for um, an asylum hearing that was scheduled for this afternoon, but it has, we just got notice yesterday. They switched it to this morning. Well, check your phone, man. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. Go check your phone. It's all good. I, mean, I let why, them know. Like, why did they move 11. it to why last minute? What, what is the, is this just the way it goes now? It, I, I do not know the, the reason. It's, it's very, um, it's very idiosyncratic. It's just, it's just, it's just spontaneous. You'll, you just have to deal with it. Yeah, that I, I don't know. And again, folks are very powerless to sort of change that, and especially the last minute. And you don't want to say, oh, we're not available in the morning. Please move the case forward because then it might be a considerable amount of time before you have that opportunity again. One thing I can talk about that seems to be systematic is there were a few, um, a number of people who were being planned to be deported. Um, but then the courts overturned that because their notices to appear um, in immigration court didn't have a specific time or date. They were just sort of like date to be determined. So they said, well, how can you sort of calculate the amount of time they've overstayed? So what has happened in the last year or so is now we're actually beginning to see some people get notices to appear, whether before the asylum office or the courts, with dates that are fictional dates. Um, and we've, we've had people, um, I mean, from reading about this, um, you know, people getting the date, uh, asylum date of September 31st, which of course doesn't exist or, you know, coming in at midnight when the courts are closed. And again, would that be a technicality then in a court? And, and are they right. delivering these dates that are not existent dates like February 2030th? On purpose or? Yeah, let me continue with that. I think they were doing it at first to make sure that there was some date on the paper thinking that this was sort of smooth over that mistake that was made. Um, but of course, courts are looking at this. Well, if it's a, if it's a fictional date or something, it doesn't so they're exist. they're just idiots. But they have now gotten, um, I think they've learned from those mistakes and people are now getting court notices or, um, notices to appear before the asylum office that are legitimate dates, but that are not scheduled within the calendar. So people might be going to see the asylum officer on a particular date and they're not even on the docket. So this is something that lawyers are beginning to look at now. I, I don't have the, it, it's sort of like this is bubbling up right now. So there's a discrepancy the between the date that the asylum seeker gets and there's no date that, that is recorded exactly. within, the, within the, the court system. But they didn't want to put date to be determined or whatever on their notice because they know that might have ramifications later down the line. So again, it's just another example of how the system is becoming less systematic. And imagine being an asylum seeker and you get this letter, you must show up at this particular date. And you speak with your lawyers who go on the website and check and you're not on the docket. And they say, you know what? Ignore that. You don't have to go that day. And people are like, well, wait a minute. I have a letter that says I have to go. Again, just the amount of anxiety or the amount of um, perhaps people wanting to sort of push back or not go through the system, the proper system as we keep on hearing about it. Um, there, there feels like there's a lot of punishment um, or at least perceived punishment that – it doesn't. I'm trying to do all these things the right way, but it doesn't seem like it's working out in my favor. I, you know, they're giving me years to wait, or they're rushing me before I can even get ready, or to give me a notice to appear for a hearing or an interview that doesn't even exist. 
And Hawk, do you think this is a breakdown of a system? Because we're, we're, you know, and to to Michael's point, in that right now we're seeing this this immigration temperature heat up, as you just said, and it. But it's always been bad, as as it's always been difficult to be an immigrant coming into the United States. And if we look at history, you know, what came to mind for me was the post 9-11, that things got really difficult post 9-11 because of terrorism, because of the perception that people from the outside were going to come here and, and do violence to, to, to Americans. And so, and I noticed and read at that time that then immigration and even, even airport security became highly tightened and people were more detained. Um, those of even citizens who had, uh, had, passports but were perceived as as non um the brown and brown folks were detained and so now um it seems worse now and we can blame this on the trump administration is this a symptom or a cause like is this is trump using immigration as a a a central point of his campaign and his presidency as a, as a scapegoat for all the problems that Americans are suffering from, or one of the main um, drivers. Um, Is this creating this chaos in the USCIS system? Or is this a result of ongoing negligence? What, what's happening that this, this is chaos. This sounds like, you know, a kind of absurdist dystopian bureaucracy that, you know, a Cheshire cat is standing there pointing in different directions. So, so where, where does this come from? Yeah. I, I think there's no doubt that the issues surrounding immigration and asylum seekers are very active and very potent in the political sphere. And that they're being used um, in different ways, particularly by by the administration. Um, but I, I think that there are multiple factors going into what's happening now, and some of it is um, more <laughs> distress around the world and people trying to flee, people trying to come to this country, um, and the resources not being adequate to to really respond to that. And you know we. We talk about the, the people who are coming in. We talk about the political aspect. Sometimes we forget about some of the service providers who are sort of caught in between. And I, I, I had a, um, the opportunity to do a training, um, out in New Jersey for the asylum office in Lindhurst, New Jersey there and work in the Newark, um, office there. And just the amount of stress, the amount of anxiety, the amount of pressure on these folks and, and to talk about, um, you know, knowing that there are people knocking on their doors that are waiting for so long, but then also wanting to have more time to deal with the three or four cases they might have to deal with that day, um, feeling constrained by some of the bureaucratic restrictions that they have, but also how they're perceived. And it was interesting, you know, I, I asked the question, we were, again, doing this sort of talk on provider wellness. And I asked folks, I said, when you go to a cocktail party or whatever it might be to go have a, a Dos Equis or whatever it is, you know, do you... um <laughs> You to know, meet you, you, the most the, interesting the, man in the go. world. Do you um, do you identify yourself as an asylum officer? How many? And there are maybe about seventy five officers there. Maybe five or six hands went up. Oh my goodness! Um, and I said, "Well, do you identify if someone? You know, you know, what do you do for a living? How many say you know well, I work for the government or something like that? And maybe another dozen, a couple hands went up. And I said, "Well, how many of you?" Um, like make up some stuff like I'm an airplane pilot or whatever, whatever. And a bunch of hands went up and it was a little bit of laughter. But at the same time, and, and, and one of the officers said, you know, it, it's funny. No one knows what we do. If you watch, for example, if you watch Fox News, 
and or you talk to someone who watches a lot of Fox News, they probably think that we are just these people who are opening the doors and just letting anyone come on, come, hey, MS-13, come on in, whatever, whatever, and open borders. But if you talk to someone who watches a lot of MSNBC or someone who might be listening to this podcast, they might say they think that we're these draconian people who are just intent on ripping apart families and all that, and people don't know what it is we do. So it's just an example of in all the areas of this system, people are feeling overwhelmed and overwrought, and it's beyond politics. And ashamed. If these people are lying about what they do, um, making stuff up so that they can hide what what it is because of a grand misperception about what it is they do, which is necessary. Um, and, and so, so that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pain around this system that, that there are these people who are waiting to get in They're uh, subject to these very, uh, mercurial, um, changes in policies. They don't know what time and what place they don't know about the dates. And then there are these, agents who are there and and do are they clear on what the system is are they also equally as confused i think when a couple of things you mentioned shame you mentioned pain and i think i would emphasize the pain more than the shame and even just again when they're out in a social setting like do i really want to have this conversation with this person who's probably going to you know come at me from one way or the other so let me be neutral um but I, I think that they are very well aware of what the limitations are. I think they are very well aware of where the potential pitfalls are. Um, and they see the pain on the people who are applying face-to-face, the uncertainty, the cases where they know if only uh, you know a couple of other pieces of information um, were there, um, questions that remain unanswered we would probably be able to grant at this level, but we can't. And so it has to go to the immigration court. So this person's probably going to be in the process for another two to three years um, and how they feel about that, you know? Um, and also the fear of not making mistake of letting someone come in who might be dangerous or who is lying and, and not wanting to be taken advantage of like that. I remember in New York when we had the, um, the situation um, many years back with Amadou Diallo, um, who was uh, – Gun down in the vestibule of his building. 41 bullets, 19 hit him. Uh, a young um, African immigrant who um, just went for his wallet and they thought it was a gun and they shot him down. And I remember that in the aftermath, it was such a great outpouring of advocacy um, around the city and defending his rights. But what a lot of people didn't realize is that Amadou Diallo was here as an asylee. Um, he claimed to have been from Mauritania and seen his parents killed and uh, everything in front of him. But then after he was killed in that barrage of bullets, here come his parents from Guinea. And and his mom I remember was, that. Yeah, his mom was quite the celebrity, media celebrity, how dignified she was and all that. But it became very, very hard for anybody from Mauritania um, to go through the system the next couple of years because there was always that sort of uh, presupposition. Hmm, it maybe. wasn't true. Yeah, maybe well, this is someone from another country claiming to be from Mauritania. Can mm-hmm. I ask you uh, – as you were talking before, even before you mentioned all of this, I, I wanted to know, you know, you clearly have a, a point of view, right? In terms of asylum seeking and those seeking asylum, right? The right to do it, what America should do, so on and so forth. Um, and yet you, and you struggle clearly in and against a system that sometimes moves too slow. Uh, I'm curious about, what's your experience in terms of the counterpoint, the people who, 
you're either going to court, uh, on, sit on the other side of the table, right? You know, are you looking at people and saying, well, we all are entering with this with good faith or, or are you seeing your counterparts, uh, inside the government acting in bad faith, or is it just a system that's fundamentally broken as you seem to be saying, because there aren't enough resources, there aren't enough days in a calendar year, uh, and there are so many people now in a world torn apart by civil war, uh, by all sorts of things. I mean, female genital mutilation has nothing to do with civil war, and yet, you know, there's a violence, rape as a weapon of war, for example, right? Things that people seek asylum for. What's your experience with the system itself? Is it just broken or is it actively resisting people who have a moral and humanitarian right? Um, I think that the system is overwhelmed. Um, when I think of something that is broken, I almost think of something that is beyond repair or um, that is so beyond its ability to function that it's almost better to do without it. Um, I wouldn't go that far. In terms of my um, point of view, I, as a psychologist, um, I'm a human rights psychologist, but it's not every client that comes to our program or tries to get in that we provide affidavits for or will go to testify for if even in terms of how they present to us or the potential for secondary gain or um, you know, things like that. It's not everyone that I will. Well, yeah, they're saying they, they need asylum. I'm, I'm going to bat for everyone. There have been times when people have come up and said things to us that are demonstrably untrue or whatever. So I only go to court. I only write affidavits for people with whom I've had clinical experience and that I find to be credible who are here in terms of trying to heal themselves. And, and, and how do you very, determine that? I mean, how do you, what standard do you have that can, di can differentiate that? Yeah. I think that one of the things we have an advantage at Bellevue is really that we have sort of a course in treatment with folks that we see them over time. And, um, if their story, um, and you know, doing this for a long period of time and, and being familiar with some of the history of a lot of the countries where our clients are coming from and, you know, do they sort of over, if there's something that's not, I always get the benefit of the doubt. We start there, but unless there's something egregiously wrong, like just a quick example, someone who came to us from Guinea in, um, 2010 and there'd been a huge manifestation riot and public rapes and people who were killed at the um their independent stadium the 28th of september stadium and the event was actually on the 28th of september 2009 he had a visa he came to the united states on the 24th of september 2009 but was still telling the story of all the things he witnessed in the stadium and being locked up for months and, and i was like are, are you sure this is your ticket and when you came in he was in brooklyn when this thing happened i can't go to court for that guy right i mean so there's when things are egregious, I won't go there. So I don't have a, the point of view that whoever knocks on the door does this. But what? So my assumption is good faith. It has to be good faith on our end. I cannot write something. I cannot write an affidavit. I cannot testify um, to something I have not observed or believe in. Um, and I hope, believe, and I'm knocking wood that the folks on the other side, too, whatever their political point of view or leaning might be, that justice um, and and a sort of clear-eyed weighing of the facts is where they're coming from. I still do believe that that exists. 
that there's a rule of law and people are following it on either side, on your side for the for the survivors of torture, that, that you've done your due diligence along with the survivor, that, that this is yeah. a story that, that is valid. But I think and what's on interesting— on the other side, that they are following this rule of law as well. But what's interesting here is that there, you know, one side says it's all fraud. The other side says everybody seeking asylum should get it. And what you're saying is, is that there's more nuance Absolutely. in some of this, right? Absolutely. And that, and that you know, uh, we're so divided, we stopped listening to these cases. So that young man who was in Brooklyn, I mean, first and foremost, he's lying, which is a bad idea when you go to court uh, or talk to a federal agent, which a lot of people in the Trump administration are learning. Uh, don't lie. Like if you don't, right? I mean, but does that man then have a valid asylum narrative or or not? And and now you can't listen to it and he can't tell it. And it just, it's, it's listen, when I'm listening to you, I'm thinking like, well, if somebody's hearing that story, it's going to validate an opinion on, on one side saying, see, there there's fraud rife throughout the system. And somebody else is going to listen and say, okay, but what's, why is he here in the first place? He still should get, you know what I mean? There's an, an emotional attachment to our politics that strike me as uh, not particularly helpful in situations like this because there are real problems. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that particular case is an outlier. Um, but what you said at the very beginning of that question, I think is very important that there is a great deal of nuance on both sides. We have immigration judges who are former Peace Corps volunteers and people who, who gravitate and asylum officers who gravitate to this field because of a true concern for human rights and wanting to see people cross. <clears throat> there are others who have much more of um, sort of defend the borders kind of mentality. That exists. There's, there's a wide range of folks. I, I, I worked with an, asylum, um, an immigration judge one time who said, you know, there are some judges who grant almost 80% of the cases that come in front of them. There are other judges that only will grant 2% of the cases. And he says, in both of those extremes, those are people who don't work for a living. You know, the, 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 the they're real not thinking truth about it. it. It's almost like this preconceived notion. So like I, I, I'm going to approve or I'm going to exactly. disapprove without thinking. So there is a lot of, of, of nuance. And I think that, um, you know, in terms of the conversation that's going out there, there's all either, you know, it's either the, the draconian folks who just want to block the borders or, you know, it's these hordes that are coming. Like those sort of extremes, if, if there's anything that sort of comes from this conversation we're having today is that I hope we'll, that people will think beyond that to the humanity of that person who is sitting in front of them. I, I remember working with a woman from Ethiopia and, um, you know, she said it very, she said a number of things, but one that she said it was very poignant was just imagine that I'm a person with no home, no family, no resources. And I'm asking if I can come to stay with you. And, you know, that in a very real way, that's sort of where she was, where she was seated emotionally. Now let's look at, let's look at her experiences. Let's look at her case. We, we often see people who, um, over the course of treatment, you know, we, we see their sort of symptoms go down a little bit, but there might be spikes and troughs depending on bad news they get or, or good news or getting a job or doing things like that. 
but we, we, we definitely see people who are engaged in their treatment in a way where they're not just sort of like almost like spinal tap, like the thing is always turned up to 11, you know, like I'm always in crisis. Like we see someone really engaging with this. There are things that we can put forth again to really help, um, take the tooth out of a, of a cross examination where someone might be getting, um, accused of malingering or faking or exaggerating and all that. We, again, our success rate is around 97%. And I think a lot of that is because we go in this with open eyes. We, and, and you know, the other question you had about that gentleman, there is a potential that there were other things that happened in his life and there might've been other traumatic things, but that's not what he came to us with. That's not what he was going to the government with. And if it's just judged on what he went forth with, um, he's going to have trouble. And again, that's problems with the street advice because some people have legitimate claims and then are told, yeah, that's not going to be enough for you. You exactly. need to exaggerate it or what exactly. have you. Use so, this lie, you'll get it. Exactly. So that's part of the reason that we do as much as we can to get out there and educate in the public. And even, you know, again, in terms of the groups that we run to let people know when, if there are things in your story or there are things in your past, and we can talk about the nature of traumatic memories that you don't remember when you're asked about them, you need to say, I don't remember. Or if there is a particular question that is asked, don't try to create anything. Even if you think that this is what the officer or what the judge is looking for, if it's not part of your history, these folks are very well trained and they will ask you the same question four or five different ways. And if it's inconsistent, they're going to think the whole thing is inconsistent. Tell your truth. Um, truth will set you free. Well, that's certainly what we hope. Um, you know, but in terms of just having mentioned traumatic memories and the fact that sometimes there are inconsistencies, people don't remember, was it four people in a room? Was it five people? Which date? And all those sort of things. And part of trying to demystify that, and we saw this in the Kavanaugh hearings when, right, <laughs> when right. Uh, Dr. Ford was talking about the hippocampus and all that. One way I try to demystify this is that, you know, almost thinking of the brain as a library and the memories like books that are filed away and under normal circumstances is a very sort of systematic way we do it. But when there's a situation of trauma, of terror or whatever, and, and the amygdala is, is, you know, saying, Flooded. Uh, you know, um, things kind of hit the fan and those books are placed any which way, right. you know, so that later on when you want to retrieve it and you go to the shelf where you think it would be. It's not there. You might not be able to recall everything that happened on a particular date or what have you. And then there are other times when you're just going around your life and you pick a book without even looking for it. And there it is. And it can be a flashback. It can be an intrusive thought and things are sort of scattered. So sometimes when someone um, has some inconsistency in their story or whatever, that's not a deal breaker. That might actually be something that is part and parcel of traumatic memory and how things are encoded and how things are expressed. And part of our job as, as psychological experts is to be there and to help explain this so that the person has a chance and we can really get at the heart of what's going on. And if the system is overwhelmed, Hawk, that means that you, know, you say you make a very strong distinction between it's not broken. That and and that means that there's too many people for a system to handle, that it's overwhelmed. There's 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 not enough providers, not enough asylum officers, not enough judges to meet the needs of what's going on. How do we um, deal with this in terms of a policy so that it doesn't, apart from the fact that it's a political football, if we really want to think about it beyond the Fox News, beyond the MSNBC idea of this, there's a real issue going on, which is that it's overwhelmed and it's becoming chaotic, or it is already chaotic, where 
a very distressing fact that dates and and times and 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 people are showing up or people's hearings you're on call right now because of this very frivolous or very last minute um, change which affects a lot of people's lives. What what do we do then on a policy level to take down this level of 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 an overwhelmed system or how do we how do we do we create more roads on the highway so that the traffic isn't this bad do we even is that our role in the world there are a, a couple of ways to look at that and some of it is content um, in terms of policy and where resources go and i know this is a huge issue this you know in terms of security of the country right now do we build a wall or do we place these billions of dollars elsewhere that might be more effective. And that's something for the politicians and, and social advocates to really get into. And I know that they are. But I think there's also process questions. And how do we talk about this? And, and Michael, your point earlier that, you know, oftentimes people don't recognize the nuance. They don't recognize that there are a lot of people who are doing not only a lot of thinking about this, but feeling within this and trying to figure this out so that we can go forward and also maybe having that conversation about who are we as a nation? Do we withdraw on this sort of nationalistic momentum or do we adhere to what's written at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty? How do we all who have immigration histories in our families, and we all do, some of us forced immigration, do we now sort of shut the door on those others who are coming who might be fleeing persecution or what have you? Again, is it a question of us and them? Or is it a question of us? Are we spending so much time talking about them, those people, those aliens, those illegals, those what have you, that we forget that we're talking about people who seek freedom, people who are seeking a better life and trying to do something to help move this country forward? Where does it become us? And I think that we need to have those conversations in ways that aren't so tribalized. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, and in having those conversations, perhaps that's part of the key to unlocking some solutions in terms of how do we get more resources and smartly placed resources to make the system, I won't say easier, but let's say less difficult. Less backlogged, there less clogged, less chaotic, less, yeah. less literally absurd, it sounds like. Yeah, more humanistic. <laughs> So, and and what you're talking about is something that we've been seeing in a lot of our interviews, uh, that there's a narrative that that is changing. Um, you point to the words about the bull at the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, and there has been a narrative of our, of our country, give us your poor, give us your cold, give us your hungry. And that, as you put it, many of us have immigrant backgrounds or immigrant histories. Most of us do. But there's a denial of that in these um, debates between in-group and out-group status, mm. that that people who have been here for a while, whatever they identify with, might say not, that's them, They're, we have what we have, we don't want to share what we got. We may have gotten it earlier, we may have come here earlier, but we don't want to share it with people who are coming now. Um, we don't have enough. There's a scarcity model, but that clashes with a narrative of um, the United States as a, as a beacon and as a beacon on ideas, according to the Declaration of Independence, all men are created equal. So what you're pointing to is a very big picture discussion then, Hawk, at the bottom, at, at the end of the day, that one of the takeaways here is that we need to, unfortunately, that I'm popping into my head as a Rumsfeldian issue, expand the problem. That, that not just process, we got to think about 
what the big picture, what we are as a nation, where we want to allocate our many resources, because we we have the resources to deal with this overwhelmed system. So, so that's that's intense. That's a lot, you know. I think that um, sometimes I look at these issues in terms of the micro and the macro, and mm-hmm. as we move to this sort of enlarged space and looking at the macro issues, I think that sometimes the best education in this is to be in the micro and have that experience, whether advocating, volunteering, um, people in the legal profession who are taking on some of these cases pro bono, um, law students, um, medical students, psychology students, psychiatric students, and everything, getting involved in this and understanding and then being able to advocate from a place of some experience, of some contact. Because uh, an immigration judge told me one time in an informal conversation, he said, if I read the New York Times and I hear that there has been an attack on a village and 1,500 Congolese have had to flee across the border into Uganda, I get that. And But when there's one woman who was among those 1,500 who comes to the court and tells what her experience was of that night, it almost becomes unbelievable because it's so, it's so shocking in its intimacy and its mm-hmm. realness. And I, I think that um, and it's inhumanity. Absolutely. And it's personal. It's personal. It's, it's exactly. individual. It's not can, a number. It's not a, it's not a statistic of people yeah. moving, ac- you know, can being I, shoved across the border. Mm-hmm. Can I go back to a thought you had earlier? Sure. Cause we're, uh, a little bit more mind, a little listed. And I know we have like one question left. Uh, you were talking about trauma that these asylum seekers are, are the trauma of the experience, the mm-hmm. trauma that they're not here, but the trauma that for which they're fleeing. How, if you can then, and your did your beautiful library mm. metaphor, how responsive is the system then to those people who are still dealing with their trauma from wherever they're fleeing. How, uh, how much flexibility or sympathy or just care does the system afford them? How much does it understand the psychological toll that they're still paying for what they're here seeking asylum from? Yeah. Two things with that. We've had a number of cases referred to us by asylum officers or even immigration judges where they've seen people decompensate in front of them. And they're like, you need assistance. Decompensate? And, um, sort of fall apart. Deteriorate. Deteriorate in front of me. Um, but that has have been the uh, exception as opposed to the rule. Oftentimes, it might be the legal teams who are like, okay, this person really needs help to go forth through this process to tolerate what is intolerable. And we may be called in or other service providers. The other thing I would say with that library metaphor and everything, and one of the, the diagnoses that gets bandied around a lot is post-traumatic stress disorder. But we are not just dealing with an isolated event of a really bad day of something that happened in Congo. We're dealing with recurrent and reinforcing stressors that tend to keep the, uh, the trauma alive very much in the present. You know, So we're not really dealing with post. And then again, are we also looking at a disorder when someone who's been through the awful things we're talking about and then the stress of coming here, not speaking the language, being the 14th person in a one-bedroom apartment, sleeping in shifts, and all these other things that are going on, um, wouldn't we expect some difficulty is, sleeping? So right, yeah, but does the system, does the asylum system make accommodation for that, I guess is the question. Or do they punish that? 
Um, I, I think that there's a wide variation. I can, I can cite cases from particular judges who weren't very conscious of that and others who are very open to that and actually will. So it's not monolithic. It's not mon. Again, like you talked about before, there's a lot of nuance. And I think that the opportunity we have, we've we've spent a lot of time today looking at the limitations because they're very real. But I think what we're looking at in terms of opportunity is to have conversations like this to open more eyes to folks to what the barriers are and what it can be that we can do to get over them and help these people who are very deserving of the assistance they seek. And as far as I understand it, to the point of Michael's question, there's no systematized offering within the within UCSIS to deal with trauma, complex trauma in the asylum seekers. They, they are purely mostly legal and bureaucratic organizations. They, the individual judges may refer, but there's no accommodation for the psychological impact of what asylum seekers may have experienced and may continue to experience. Right. That is correct. I mean, there's a national consortium for torture treatment programs, of which Bellevue is is, is part, um, scattered around the uh, the country. There are different um, resettlement refugee resettlement agencies. But uh, as I go around the country and do training at various places, it, a common theme is there is a lack of adequate mental health supportive services for folks. So um, I think raising awareness, doing what you people are doing here is is, is a wonderful is a wonderful step, but it's going to be a long, long journey. And, um, you know, I, I remain optimistic that we can make progress. I, I, you know, one thing, if I can leave you with an anecdote, um, you know, the, the Francophone group I run, there was a, a, a question asked once by an escaped slave from Mauritania. He asked, what are the, uh, what are the, the things that we need, the characteristics one must have to change the world or at least to survive in the world? And, I never thought they'd come to a consensus on this. It's a pretty deep question, but they did. And that night they came up with three things. They said wisdom, courage, and hope. And they went a little further and they said that if you have two of these qualities, no matter which two, it's insufficient. Because if you're a courageous and hopeful person who lacks wisdom, you're going to go about your activities in an ineffective way and probably fail. If you're wise and hopeful, but you lack courage, then you're going to sort of cross your arms and be trapped in a prison of inertia and never act on your, on your, your ideas. But with the people I work with, the people that you've come in contact with, I mean, the wisdom is there, the courage is there. What's hard to hold on to is hope. And then he went even further and mentioned that, well, hope is not so much something you have. It's something you do. It's, it's an attitude. It's a comportment. It's a way of sort of leaning in to the world and to the situation and, it's, it's a capacity to hope and that perhaps most importantly, that capacity to hope can be shared. And I find that a lot with our client base and how they help one another. That's kind of how I see our work at the program and what I do and actually helping people to hold on that even if this does take five years, even if there is a presupposition that you, your, your story isn't credible until you prove it to be credible and you stay in there and you hang in there, your family can be in front of you. You can work towards that. You got to hang in. And that's kind of where we sit right now. Beautifully said. Thank you. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for joining us, Hawk. It's my great pleasure. Thank you. Hawk, is there a way that people who are listening in might be able to then, either if they are themselves an asylum seeker or if they simply want to help, uh, can contact you? Absolutely. They can reach us. um, We have a webpage, which is uh, www.survivorsoftorture.com. 
one word.org facebook which is kind of old man social media here um we have the bellevue nyu program for survivors of torture that's our page and um yeah come check us out well we have reached the end of yet another session and as i like to say to michael time to take our problems home with us mind of state is a production of mind of state media llc and hangar studios nyc our crackerjack producer is carolyn quash our engineer is jack dixon Mind of State's original music is composed by Joel Goodman, courtesy of Uber Music. I'm Betty Tang. And I'm Michael Epstein. You can connect with us on Twitter at Mind of State Pod, on our Facebook page, and at our website, mindofstate.com. You can also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.